I, I grew up here in Texas uh, all my life. I've been here. <clears throat> I grew up mainly here in Tarrant County, uh, the city of Arlington, my young childhood, and uh, the HEB area, and now North Tarrant County. About the only time that I've really lived some other place was in the summers. Uh, I spent the summers on my grandfather's farm. That's down near Tyler in deep east Texas. And uh, there was a stretch of my life for a few years where my dad pastored in Canton and in, in Palestine. If you're from Texas, you'll know where those cities are. And so uh, between the, about the sixth and the ninth grade, uh, I, I left Tarrant County and lived in, in deep east Texas, sixth to ninth grade. And that, uh, those four years uh, made a profound impact uh, upon my young life. Because it was those years, those four years, in the sixth grade in particular, that I first became aware of racism. <clears throat> I didn't really, you know, know what racism was. I, I grew up in, you know, in, in, right here in Tarrant County and, you know, just we were a mixed up people and uh, I didn't experience that, wasn't really exposed to that. <clears throat> but when I lived in East Texas, and I remember clearly in the sixth grade, it was the first time I became aware that racism was a thing. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you look up in, in your school and you realize, hey, there's no black people here. There are no African Americans here. Is that the way the world looks? And you realize, well, that's not even the way Kent looks. That's the way East Texas looks. It's not the way Palestine looks. What's, what's going on here? Something's going on. Now, I remember in the seventh grade, very clearly, there was only one African American girl in my entire you know, great at all. <clears throat> and I, I remember her clearly. Uh, and I remember in Canton in those days, the, the black community, the African-American community, didn't live in town with the white community of the, the residents of the city of Canton. Uh, they lived in Wynn community outside of the city. And that, to me, was like, I'm like, what's going on here? I'd never seen this. I'd never experienced this before. There's one girl, you'll understand why I remember her, uh, this one girl that was in my grade, uh, I have suspicions because I remember her brother as well. He was in the senior high, and I suspect, looking back, that this particular girl only attended uh, my school because her, her big brother was the best running back in Van Zandt County. There's a picture coming together for you now. And so I think the city and maybe the community or the school, whoever controls things, I don't know, Somebody must have made an exception uh, uh, for this family because her older brother was, I remember, a superstar in, in high school. Uh, I, I remember her for different reasons because she, hang out, she hung out with my friend group. And uh, when we would run and play and, and, and be wild little you know, hellions and terrorize the school and have a great time at our playtime, I remember <clears throat> this girl was faster than all the boys. And she would, she would chase me and my friend group around, and whenever she would catch me, she'd kiss me. Now, needless to say, I'm not a racist. I'm an equal opportunity kisser. And uh, uh, maybe she intuitively knew that. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I thought about her as I reflected back on some of my life experience now, and I wonder how lonely it must have been for that girl. I can't remember her name. But I wonder how lonely it must have been for her as she grew up as a complete outsider 
one of only one in an entire white school, I wonder how that impacted her life looking back. I wonder if school for her was a lonely experience in the midst of all of her peers. Well, what I came to know over the next few years as I began to to grow is that many people have a feeling that they don't belong. Many people feel marginalized. Many people feel lonely being outsiders, even in the midst of a group of people. As I mature, the realization becomes more and more clear to me. Racial minorities feel like outsiders. It is a fact. Teens feel like outsiders. Being a teenager is a very strange thing. You don't, you're not a child. You don't want to be treated as a child. You don't fit in with children, but you're not quite an adult. And you don't have the responsibilities of adult life. And being a teenager is a very bizarre thing. Even into your 18, 19, 20 sometimes, you're like this outsider who's developing normally, but you're not a kid and you're not an adult, and it's hard to find where you fit. It's hard to find where you're going to be accepted. What we know very clearly is women feel like they're not valued in society as the same way that men are. I was reading a a book recently and and, uh, there was a series of essays in the book. One of the essays was written by uh, Eva Bleeker. She was a theology student. She studied theology like I did. And I can imagine what an outsider she must have felt. Studying theology as a woman, you know, in a conservative institution, teaching orthodox theology. Uh, She wrote in her journal while she was in the university this sentence. I hope God values and loves women in the same way he values and loves men. That's quite a statement. It's really made me think a lot in the weeks as I was preparing for this particular sermon. I... Remember in the early days of ministering in Europe, uh, way back, uh, late 80s, early 90s, communism's fallen, we're going into Romania, I make friends with Elijah there, who's, gosh, he's probably 18 when I met him, something like that, 19 years old, and we've been, you know, friends ever since, you guys got a chance to meet him last, uh, a few Wednesday nights ago, uh, and I asked Elijah, I said, I, I'd just like to pull some friend group of our pastors together, and I'd like to just love on them a little bit. And uh, we did. We hosted a pastor's meeting, uh, told them to bring their wives. And in that pastor's meeting, uh, I remember this. You, you may remember this as well. I don't think you were around in these days. The Resist All Hat Factory of, of uh, Texas donated uh, felt cowboy hats to every pastor I had in attendance there. We shipped them over to Romania, and we gave them out that night to all the pastors. They thought it was hilarious, you know, that they were cowboys, and they had seen Western movies. And So when we brought those pastors and their wives together, it was in a small banquet hall, about half the size of this room. And uh, I stood up, and Elijah was interpreting, and, and I, uh, you know, we, we were greeting them out the door and hugging on them. Were you there, Alan and Tammy? Were you all there for that? Were you there, Tammy, as well? Alan was, okay. And we were hugging on them and loving on them and just the whole, was, the whole meeting was to make them feel loved because they were coming out of that persecution and it was such a hard life 
And we want them to know that their, their brothers and sisters in Texas valued their sacrifice and what they'd been through. And so as we were loving on them and welcoming them, uh, a gypsy pastor and his wife came in. Uh, Cheriasha and Danutz came in. And we greeted them and they came into the room as well. And I noticed when the gypsy pastor and his wife came in, they took their seat in the back corner of the room. They, air quotes, knew their place. Are you with me? All the big shots were sitting up front, the people with the big degrees and the big Romanian churches and the gypsies slipped in, took their place in the back. Well, Elijah and I just kind of filed that away and just worked the room. And when I stood up to speak, Elijah began to translate and I said, hey, we want to welcome all of our pastors. There's special people in the room and we just want to honor you. And I have special friends here and I just want to introduce, you know, real man and woman of God. And I could just see several of those pastors just swelling with pride, uh, you know, about to be introduced. And I introduced the gypsy couple to them. You could just hear the wind go out of the room. Uh, they are marginalized. In Romania, they're called Tsagan. I think it's a derogatory term. I'm not sure. Gypsies now considered a derogatory term. The Roma is the right word to use now if you're speaking about the gypsy people of Europe. Listen, I sure hope God loves the Roma and values them as much as he does Romanians. So I want you to think about that for a minute. In Nepal and in India which is, you know, a lot of our present missions work, the caste system is very much alive and well. If you go to high school or the university and they tell you about the ancient caste system and tell you it's no longer in play, it was done away with a long time ago, don't believe a word of it. It's very much in play. I've experienced it for decades now. It's very much alive and well. I remember clearly one night, Ezekiel, our, our disciple, our lead disciple in India, says, come on, Bobby, we've got to go calls me pastor come on pastor get on my bike it's a motorcycle get on my bike and uh, uh we're going to go do some visitation i'm like okay and so we're in delhi zipping down the little side dirty streets and dodging cows and people and everything and and we pull up to a nice house and he and i said okay what am i about to walk into give me the briefing he said this is a, a hindu family they're wonderful people i'm befriending them we're in the just the befriending friend stage right now with them and I told them you were going to come pray and over their family and bless them tonight. And uh, we just want to just, you know, just meet them. They're all unsaved. The idol will be there on the wall when we get in the house. Full, just the normal protocol. I'm like, got it. And so we went into the home of the, the Hindu. They were so polite. Listen, they had dressed up knowing I was coming. And uh, uh, we walked in. And, and I remember when I, I came into the house, uh, the man nodded to his children. He had you know, just stair steps for teenagers down to elementary. He just gave them a look. And I had taken a seat and all the kids walked over and touched my, my foot and then walked back over and stood. And I'm like, I don't know what just happened, but thank you. And uh, later Ezekiel told me they were honoring you. They were, they were saying, thank welcome to our home. And they were humbling themselves there. And so they were just so polite. They brought snacks out and India has these awesome spicy little Chex Mix that they make that'll just light your world on fire. And so they're bringing that out and, you know, and some cookies and they break out the orange Fanta and whatever, you know. And, and so they're, it's just, they're very hospitable, wonderful, kind people. And we're just talking about life and we're just talking, uh, you know, just becoming friends and a beautiful family. And I noticed as they began to pour the drink that they poured my 
drink in the same glasses that the family was drinking out of. And when they poured Ezekiel's drink, they poured it into a different type of glass completely. And I just filed that away, and I understood what was happening. We were high caste. If they only knew, I come from poor white trash. But because I'm an American, they thought I was high caste. They were high caste. And Ezekiel is Naga tribes. He's low caste. And they weren't trying to insult him. They were just following the protocol of their culture. And they were saying, we drink out of these glasses. You're Naga. You drink out of these glasses. Very much the way a Jew would have treated a Gentile if they had even allowed them in the home to drink at all. It's been with us all the way, ladies and gentlemen. I sure hope God loves Nagas as much as he loves high caste Hindus. See, what they didn't know is that Ezekiel had a treasure that they did not possess. And Ezekiel was willing to share his treasure with them. Ezekiel had the key to the kingdom of God. The message of the gospel of how to have faith in Jesus Christ. And Ezekiel being low cast was willing to open the doors of the kingdom of God and, and share with them the treasure that he had found in Jesus Christ. And they were high cast. They didn't know that they didn't have, they didn't know what they didn't know. But Ezekiel was willing to be humbled in their presence to share the gospel with them even when they thought themselves superior to him. The irony, the irony of all of it. Some of you are going to go off to the university and there uh, you'll be an outsider. And you'll be an outsider trying to break into a new paradigm. You know, now for the last year you've like been the, you know, the big kahuna on campus, and you're the senior, and you've got all the privileges, and everybody, boy, the roles just reverse in ten minutes. As soon as you walk across the stage, you're back on the bottom of the totem pole again. And now you have to break into a whole new paradigm as, as an outsider. Some, some of you are searching for a church community this morning, and you've come into the house of God today to, to, to worship together and to sing and to hear from the Word of God and you're trying to break into a, to a church community, it's very much the same type of feeling. You want to be discipled, you want to be nurtured, you want to grow, but it's difficult because in the early days you feel like I'm the outsider here. And I just want you to know the Cornerstone family gets that. We understand that's a hard paradigm shift to break through, but just hang here with us and you'll feel like family in just, just a few days. Just break right in. And that's exactly what we want you to do. Some of you are trying to establish, and some of you are trying to reestablish a relationship with Jesus Christ. But in your case, the voice of guilt keeps telling you that you can't measure up, that you'll never belong. The voice of guilt tells you you'll never be good enough. And what that does is it fills your heart and your mind with anxiety about whether God will forgive you and whether His people will accept you. And those are thoughts and anxieties that nearly everyone struggles with universally. All of us have felt like outsiders 
At least at some point in our lives, you've felt like an outsider. And our story this morning is about a woman named Rahab. And I want you to know you can learn from her because she is the ultimate outsider. Rahab enters the biblical narrative at a climactic moment in Israel's history. In other words, something big is happening in Israel and she is a part of that big thing that's about to happen. God's people are on the east side of the Jordan River. They are not in the promised land yet. They are on the other side looking in. Joshua is now the commander-in-chief of Israel. Moses, just on the mountain over there, has gone to the Lord. The nation of Israel is outside of Israel looking over River Jordan into the promised land. Let me say it a different way. Israel has never been to Israel. They haven't been in Israel in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They've been outside the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers. Now, hundreds of years later, they're standing at the River Jordan, where we'll be next year, and they're at Bethabara looking across, and they're saying, there is Jericho. You can see it right there on the hill, just right in front of our faces. There is Jericho. And we're going into the promised land. As the people of God, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You guys may know some of this story already. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of their parents' lack of faith. Because of their parents' lack of faith, God says that generation will not go into the promised land. They cannot move the ball forward. And that generation, the entire generation of God's people, had to be buried. Now I want you to think about the implications of that. They had to bury an entire generation of what should have been leaders of God's people. But they had to be buried in order that the young generation could go forward and be what God wanted His people to be. The old generation didn't have the faith to move forward when it was their turn to lead. So God said, we'll have to bury that generation, and then I'll have to take the younger generation, and let's see if they will move forward when it's their time to lead. In our own time, right now, uh, you're, you're living right now through probably the greatest upheaval that some mainline denominations are ever going to experience in your lifetime. The, the Baptists are hanging by a thread this morning about to just completely implode the entire denomination. If you're following the news, you'll understand what's happening. If not, I'll explain it all in days to come. Corruption and corruption and corruption and cover-up and sexual scandal and abuse and cover-up and payouts and to the nth degree. Make the Catholics blush. Okay? This is the situation, and I think we're going to live through a whole cycle of this, and maybe we are coming, hopefully, to the end of a cycle of this, between the Baptists and the Pentecostals and Methodists, and and really all of our evangelical cousins are burying a generation for the same reasons, because they just can't move forward. And so I want to encourage the young men, And the young women of Cornerstone, you young men and you young women listening around the world to this message right now, move forward in faith. 
reform what God has handed to you, lead it to the next place it needs to go, have the courage to get the church back on track, get rid of the racism, get rid of the sexism, get rid of the abuse, get rid of the scandal, focus back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, get rid of the celebrity pastors, get rid of all of the nonsense, and start leading people to Christ and making disciples for the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. And that's what has to happen in this pivotal moment of our lives. Now, Rahab is the epitome of what it means to be an outsider. Here comes the list. She is Canaanite. She is female. She is a prostitute. And she is a resident of the city of Jericho, which is doomed. It is already in the crosshairs of Joshua. And it will be the first city that will fall in the promised land under the conquest of the children of Israel. Every living thing in the city is going to the sword. Now that's quite a thing, isn't it? So here sits the army of Israel, staring up at the city of Jericho. Up here in the city of Jericho, on the wall, is Rahab staring out at the army of Israel. She is staring at her executioners, waiting like a death row inmate for the inevitable to happen. Which brings us to the spies. The spies are the insiders in this story. These are Jewish spies in a Jewish book about Jewish history that you're reading from Joshua. Chapter 2. The spies are the insiders, okay? The spies are God's people. God has opened the Red Sea for these people. They've seen miracles. They've been fed miraculously. They've had water miraculously given to them. They have followed a pillar of fire at night. And they have dwelt under a cloud of God to shade them from the blazing desert sun by day. They have enjoyed God's presence and God's miracles the whole way. These two spies, these insiders, they are on a secret mission from the most powerful Jew alive, the most powerful Israelite, the commander-in-chief. Joshua commissions them personally. We have an expectation as the story opens that the spies will be the representatives of God. Is that fair? These are God's people. They've had the miracles. They're being commissioned by the head Israelite. We have an expectation that when we meet these two gentlemen in just a moment, that they're going to be representatives of Almighty God, reflecting His image to the world, reflecting His values to the world, and reflecting glory back to God. But the story has such a bizarre beginning. I'm reading from Joshua 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Now, let's just pause right there for a moment. He's sending two spies to go look over the land, and especially Jericho. And the author has written this in a very interesting way. The place Shittim means the Acacia Grove. Whenever groves come up in the Old Testament, they are places for idol worship. Particularly, the idols are called Baal, B-A-A-L, usually. And whenever you see grove 
and Baal, or grove and idolatry, or grove and sexual activity, you're dealing with idol worship in the ancient world of the Old Testament. There is a place called the Acacia Grove. It's pronounced Shittim. When the author of Joshua chapter 2 begins the story, he says, now, at Shittim, it doesn't mean anything to you, but again, it wasn't written to you. Joshua was written for a Jewish audience to remember their history. And when the invocation of Shittim is given, it's it's designed to stun the reader and to make everyone sit up straight. Uh, Shittim is infamous. The story of Shittim, beginning with Shittim, is like opening a movie with a flashback. It'd be like you went to see a movie or you were reading a book and you open up and it immediately says, 20 years earlier, at Shittim. Here's what, that's what it would be like. Previously, we left the children of Israel at Shittim. And here's what they were involved in. Invoking Shittim in the opening sentence is the author saying to an informed reader, previously in the saga of God's people, we remind you of what happened at Shittim. Israel would have collectively said, oh, God, don't bring up Shittim. Do you know what happened at Shittim? Let me tell you quickly the story. Israel's coming out of the wilderness journey, getting ready to come into the promised land. They're confronted with two foreign kings, Sihon and Og. They are not yielding the right of way, and they come out opposed to Israel, and Israel slaughters two kings, Sihon and Og. The nation of Israel is running high on adrenaline. They are full of the, of the victory spirit. They are celebrating. And, and, and what happened is they camped at Shittim after their victory. And what they did at Shittim nearly cost them, the entire nation, their opportunity to go into the promised land. God's people did something so offensive to God at Shittim that He nearly destroyed His own people. Now, whenever that happens in the Old Testament, you can guess that it's got something to do with idolatry. Because that is the one thing. That is God's hottest hot button right there. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You shall not bow down yourself to them. Not of things, the sun, the moon, the I could just go on and on. It's God's hot button. And it had something to do with idolatry. The story is found actually in Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to read you a piece of it so you'll understand what so offended God. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. That'll do it. But it's not just about sex. The women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate the sacrificial meal... And they bowed down before the gods. And so they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. So it involves a sacrificial meal. It involves bowing down to idols. And it involves the consummation of the party. Okay? The whole thing together becomes the idol worship. And God is ticked. After 40 years of putting up with them and caring with them... They're about to walk into the promised land. They're looking at Jericho. They're right there. And God's like, seriously? 
Seriously, we're almost home. Grow up, people. And no, no, they don't. So here's what happens. Numbers 25, 6. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and before the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent meeting. That's at the church door. That's the tabernacle. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly and he took a spear in his hand. And he followed the Israelite into the tent and he drove the spear into both of them right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000 people. Let me put it in quick English. One man was so brazen that he marched his sex partner right to the house, uh, to the door of the church, right under Moses' uh, right under Joshua's nose, and right under the elders' nose, as if nanny, nanny, boo, boo, we can do whatever we want to because we're God's people and He loves us and we're special, so let's all have a party. And he brought his sex partner right in front of the, the house of God and marched her right into his tent. And the high priest's son was so incensed that he grabs a spear and he runs into the tent behind them and he spears both of them through while in flagrante delicto. And it was only after they were speared that the Lord said, okay, some of my people get it and they understand how offensive this all is. And as that happened, God said, I'll stay the plague. We don't know what the plague was. Doesn't tell us the details of it. But whatever it was, it swept through in moment and 24,000 people just dropped before God stopped it. So now you'll understand why when you open a Jewish story with, meanwhile, at Shatim, everybody kind of tightens up a little bit. Everybody's ears are perked up. And you can bet whatever the story is that's about to follow here is going to have some spice to it. Because the stage has already been set with the invocation of the city of Shittim. So let me read Joshua 2 verse 1 in its entirety now and you'll see what I mean. Then Joshua the son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go and look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Sure enough, the two male spies are sent across the river to spy out Jericho, and within one sentence, they are now in the home. They have now found the Canaanite prostitute. Do you see the link the author has intentionally made for you? Meanwhile, at Shatim, one sentence, we send the spies, they're in the house of the prostitute. All right, now let me tell you, I don't know how you were taught this in Sunday school. Rahab's not an innkeeper, she's a prostitute. These guys are not being chased through the streets and stumble in here because it's the only unlocked door in the alley. There's no mention of the spies completing the task that Joshua has committed them to complete. That is not mentioned in the story. The text doesn't say the spies did any spying. 
The text does not say that they acquired any intelligence about Jericho except where you can find a prostitute while visiting. That's all. That's the whole story. And it's designed to be read that way. In fact, the next verse reveals that these two guys are terrible spies. Terrible spies. Joshua 2.2 The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent the message to Rahab, Quote, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the land. So here's the story on the spies. They've already been detected. They've already been located. Now they're about to be arrested and they will surely be killed. They're terrible spies. Now, as you read the story through Western eyes, you know that this is a Hebrew story written to Israelites in the Hebrew language. It's very nuanced, just like Greek and just like English. And that story has to be translated from Hebrew into English. And in that translating process, you lose the cleverness of the author's wordplay. Throughout this entire story, it is filled with double entendres. Language that has a double meaning. This is the way it's written in Hebrew. The author is telling you a PG-rated story at face value, but you're expected to translate the story into an R rating as you process the real meaning of the language. The word entered has already occurred twice in three verses. The word entered, they entered into Rahab's house, has a double meaning. It's designed that way in the Hebrew. Rahab's name has now been invoked. Rahab's name functions in Hebrew the same way that the term, the noun, broad, functions in English. They went into Jericho and they found themselves in the house of some broad. Exactly the way the word broad works in English is the way Rahab's name works in Hebrew. Broad is a noun. Let me put the definition on the screen. It means to, it means to, to breed, usually offensive. A term used to refer to a promiscuous woman. Matter of fact, the term broad is so offensive to women, they changed in women's athletics the term broad jump to long jump. Google that little factoid. Because broad is so offensive to, to a woman. Now that's the way the word works in English. So now you go to your Hebrew dictionary and you look up the name Rahab in a Hebrew dictionary and here's what her name means in Hebrew. Rumi. In every or any direction, literally or figuratively, her name means broad. The author has designed a story so that you're getting the message here. Her name is broad. She's prostitute, a Canaanite, female, doomed to die under the sword in the first city of the conquest. And they called her a broad Broad. What's her name? Broad. It's all over the Bible. Rahab, she's broad. Rather than these spies demonstrating stealth and demonstrating skill, they have been discovered. They're about to be caught. 
they're at the local brothel having a nice time with the Canaanite prostitute, and yet it's the broad, air quotes, who is the sharp one in the story. And it is her wit, her cleverness, her quick thinking, and ultimately her faith that is going to save these spies or they're as sure as dead. Two weeks ago I posed the question to you, can a prostitute be called righteous? Well, here we go. If we assume that the spies went into the brothel with the understanding that all of the residents of Jericho are doomed, they will be dead in just a few days. Everybody here in the city will be dead in a few days when Israel conquers this city. So while we're here, what does it matter if we have a little fun? All of these people will be dead tomorrow anyway. So what happens next in the story is the ultimate plot twist then. Verse number 3. So the king of Jericho sends the message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came and entered into your house, because they've come to spy out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She's quick on her feet. Watch this. She says to the king, Yes, men came to me, but I do not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was the time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. Maybe they went that way. You can catch them if you hurry. Verse 6, parenthetical statement. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. They're running towards the army of Israel to catch the spies before they get across the river. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Three verses into the story... Rahab has already outsmarted every other character in the story. If you're feeling that way, then you're getting the author's point. He has designed the story in such a way that by the third verse, you're supposed to be cheering for Rahab. You're supposed to be high-fiving her and saying, Go girl, you go girl, you're sharp, you're a quick thinker, you've got these guys secreted away, you're sending these people in the wrong way, you're going to make a deal over here. You're supposed to be cheering for her. And what happens next is in, I would just say, shocking. I don't know how else to describe it. Because now we discover the Canaanite prostitute has become a believer. Verse number 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and she said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord has dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of the land of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Watch this sentence. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now Rahab is confessing her faith in Yahweh God. She's looking at the spies and saying, here's the deal. I believe that your God is God. God of heaven and God of earth. Now whether or not the spies came for sex, they must have been dumbfounded, and I'm going to say embarrassed, as Rahab starts articulating orthodox Israelite theology to them. 
They've come for a good time, and she's like, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about God. I believe that God, and she just starts articulating her faith. Now, I say it another way. The story started three verses ago in Shittim. Flashback. While Israel is flirting with Canaanite idols, Rahab the Canaanite has put faith in Israel's God. The irony. Do you see what the author has done? In just a few verses, he's made a whole reversal of fortune. Everything's upside down. Or right side up. You, you're trying to say, wait, who, who are God's people and who are not God's people? And let me just pose the question to you right now because that's what I want you to start thinking about as we keep going. Who are God's people? The Jews say they're God's people. The Baptist sex abusers say they're God's people. The Catholics say they're God's people. And one group says they're God's people. Another group says they're God's people. Who exactly are God's people? Now, let's not answer it just yet. But let's be thinking about it. And let's see what happens in the text. The promise of salvation. Verse 12. Now then, Rahab says, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Because I have shown kindness to you, give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and my sister and all who belong to him, extended family, and that you will save us from death. Verse 14, the spies make a famous statement. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, it's like anybody, it's like it's a secret to anybody. These guys are really full of themselves. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for her house. The house she lived in was part of the city wall. She is actually the house on the wall. Verse 17. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding unless... When we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother and your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them goes outside of your house into the street, listen, when, when we get here with the army, if you guys go outside and you don't have that scarlet cord in the window, your, your blood's going to be on your own heads. That's what they're saying. We will not be responsible as for those who are in your house, their blood will be on our hands if anybody just touches a hair on their head. That's the deal they made. Now, the author has done something to you sneakily again. The author has intentionally connected you back to Passover. With just that little two verses, the author of Joshua 2 has intentionally made a parallel to the Exodus. He has taken you back to the night of the Passover. Passover to the Jews was like your July 4th Independence Day. This is the night the nation was born. This is the declaration of independence. This is the night we go as a free people in the morning. We declare independence. God judges. Boom, we're out of here in the early darkness of the morning hours. It was the night that God's people exercised their faith and they took the crimson scarlet blood of a lamb 
and they put it on the doorposts of their house, and they gathered all their family into that house. And Moses had told them, when the death angel comes through, do not be out in the streets or your blood's on your own head. But if the blood of the lamb is applied to the house, you're going to be safe, everyone in the house. It didn't matter whether they were good people or bad people. It didn't matter if they were rich people or poor people. It didn't matter if they were Jewish slaves or Egyptian mothers. It didn't matter who was in the house. If the blood was on the door, the people in the house are safe by acting in faith to put the blood on the door and staying in the house. That's the story of Passover. And now it's just the author has repeated the story and said to not a Jew, but a Canaanite prostitute, go gather all of your family and bring them into your home. Tie the scarlet rope in the window. Now, I've got lots of questions that the Bible doesn't answer for me. And and maybe I've just got a wild imagination. What's the deal with the scarlet? Why does the woman have a scarlet rope? Does anybody here have a scarlet rope? Don't answer out loud. I mean, seriously? I have a feeling the scarlet rope was a symbol of her profession. Some kind of advertisement is what I think it was. I can't prove that, but that's my gut. And now the symbol of her old life is about to be turned around, and now it's about to be the symbol of God's saving faith upon a house. And whether the spies put all this together or not, I don't know. I don't think they're that sharp, honestly. Uh, I think it, it's happened this way for, for us. And so they tie the scarlet rope in, in, the, in the window. Now let me fast forward the story. Because now the spies go this way. And then when the pursuers, and then the spies go that way. And they take the report back to Joshua. And Joshua now has to get all the people across the river. And they've got to get ready to go siege the city of Jericho. So let me just fast forward. Almost getting there now. Joshua 3 and 4. Joshua chapter 3. And Joshua chapter 4 chronicle Israel's national crossing of the Jordan River. And just like when God opened the Red Sea, now he opens a way through the Jordan River. Same bookend stories on both ends. You're taken right back to Passover and crossing again. And the Israel's going to cross chapter 3 and 4 and all of that. Okay. Now, the whole congregation who were grown up, the old people are dead, the young generation has grown up. The Bible is very clear. The old people who left Egypt had been circumcised, but all of their children of the, of the wilderness, none of them had been circumcised. And again, you're just like, this is the covenant sign. Y'all, y'all hadn't even got out of the wilderness, and you're not even following the covenant sign that God gave you. I tell you all the time, the church has to be reformed continually. Israel had to be reformed constantly. Because she constantly slid back and broke the covenant rules. So before they start trying to conquer the land, Joshua's like, we probably ought to get right with God first. Does that sound like a good plan to anybody? Let's just see if we can follow the rules he set out for us to be God's people. It's, it's, the covenant sign was that the males would be circumcised. Let's do that and let's get that right with God before we start trying to conquer the, these people who inhabit the land. So they, they circumcised a whole generation of males and let them heal and all that takes time and you, you, you put all that together. So it took some time. Joshua said, you know what? It's Passover season. And it sounds like they hadn't even kept the Passover. Let's keep the Passover. So here's the first Passover in the promised land. Happens right here in chapters uh, 5. 
And then you get to the latter part of chapter 5, and there's a very interesting thing that happens in the latter part of Joshua 5. It's dark. They're getting ready to conquer Jericho. Joshua's got some battle nerves. And he takes a little walk at night because he can't sleep. And as he's walking at night, he meets a warrior with a drawn sword. Let me read it. Now, when Joshua was near to Jericho, he looked and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him. Now, first of all, it gives you a little... Joshua is not a coward. This is a warrior. In the dark, a guy with a drawn sword. Most of us are looking for the exit. And Joshua's like, shling, let's go. Let's do it. But I want to know who I'm dealing with. And so Joshua begins to speak. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Answer. Answer. I want you to remember that. I'm coming back to it. Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It's pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord is looking at Joshua and saying, I've come to have a conversation with you. I am come as commander-in-chief of the universe. I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. And the commander of the Lord's army replied in verse 15, Take off your shoes, for the ground you're standing on is holy. Schlop. Joshua goes down on his face with no shoes. Does that bring back any memories for you Bible readers? We're right back at the burning bush, aren't we? And now Joshua is on his face, standing before the Lord. Now I want to take you back to a conversation. Shling! Are you for us or against us? Answer? But I want to get this through your head. Is God for us or against us? Oh, that sounds different, doesn't it? Is God for us or against us? God, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? Neither. God is on God's side. Now, I think it's important that we get through this, okay? God, are you on the Republican side or the Democrat side? Go ahead and tell me. God is on God's side. And it's not God's business to get on the Republicans or Democrat side. It's the Democrats and Republicans' job to get on God's side. Now, as Americans, we have another problem. We always think God is on our side. God, are you on our side or are you on the Chinese side? I want you to hear clearly from God this morning. Neither. God is on God's side. And it's not your job as God's people to try to get God on your side. Your job is to get on God's side. I think we've got something a little broken right here. And I don't really know how to put my finger on it. And I'm not sure I have the right words this morning. Prayer is not a tool for you to get on your knees and bend God to your will. Prayer is a tool where you get on your knees and in that exchange with God... He bends you to His will. That's the proper use of prayer. Our prayer is not, God, my will be done in heaven as in earth. Jesus said, pray like this, God, Your will be done on earth as in heaven. So I just, I know this rubs against your grain. 
And it rubs a little bit against mine too. But God is not on our side. God is on God's side. He's the creator. You're the creation. Your job is to get on God's side, not try to bend Him or manipulate or control the narrative to get Him on your side. That's not the way this works. We think way too much of ourselves when it comes to this type of language. God, Your will be done. Bend me to Your will, Lord. Joshua's got a head of steam. Are you for us or against? God's like, come on, knothead. You work for me. Take your shoes off, dude. You're on holy ground. I'm the commander-in-chief. If you want a word from God, then face down. Let's get it. And if you want to go toe-to-toe, you'll lose this encounter. You're not going to bend me to your will. From outsider to... I told you it was a fascinating story. We're almost there. Joshua 6.20. From outsider to accepted. When the trumpet sounds... So Joshua gets a battle plan from God. I'm fast-forwarding. Summarize, summarize, summarize. They march around the walls, blow the trumpet. Okay. When the trumpet sounded and the army shouted and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave the shout, the wall collapsed and everyone charged straight in and they took the city. Verse 21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young, old cattle, sheep, donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house. Evidently it's still standing. And bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying, now we understand they're young men. Little layers are being revealed here. I have a feeling she's a very young woman. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and they put them in a place in wind community outside the camp. You see that? Not in the camp, outside the camp. Now here's what's exciting to me. God has done something for her and her family. They have believed in God, they've articulated faith in God, and God has done some miracle for her and her family of salvation, but God's people still haven't caught up to the full ramifications of what has happened. The larger body of God's people, the Israel, have not fully caught up to the full ramifications of what God has just done. So they've still got her and her family outside the camp. Now, most of the reliable traditions believe that Rahab went on to marry one of the spies, and I'm a believer in that narrative. The spy's name was Salmon. Somewhere along the way, we don't know where exactly, we're not told, but somewhere along the way, they begin to catch up a little bit to what God was doing, and the outsider became accepted among God's people. By the time you get to verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And now she lives among the Israelites to this day. So how did the outsider become accepted as God's people? Well, The pastor who wrote the sermon in Hebrews 11, verse number 31, says that she became God's people by faith. 
Now, here's what I want to say to you as we wrap this. If you don't have Rahab and her story in the book of Joshua, then you're going to read in the book of Joshua a horrific story of ethnic cleansing. The Israelites slaughter men, women, and children because everybody else is a different race and they wipe them all out. That will be the story of Joshua, if not for Rahab's story being inserted in this narrative. And what I want to say to you this morning is that Rahab chose sides. She chose God, and she chose God's people. And some of you are wrestling with that very decision this morning. Will I identify with God, and will I find a place among God's people? What I want to say to you this morning is that God made room for Rahab among his people. And God surely will make room for you among his people also. As we get to the New Testament, the whole point of the upper room narrative where Jesus gets to John 14 and says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Listen, Jesus is telling his followers, I'm going to go do something on the cross is what he's referring. I'm going to do something through my death and resurrection I'm going to do something that is going to make room for everyone in my Father's house. I'm going to open up a way for all of us to be included in God's people. One parting shot for you, just to show you how real this is in the New Testament. Let me show you Rahab in the Gospels. Rahab is one of the Canaanite women listed in the genealogy of Jesus by Matthew Matthew thinks that Rahab's story is so important that you need to go back and know it because Matthew puts it prominent right there in the genealogy of Jesus as a critical story. You need to know that Rahab is the great-great-grandmother of King David. She's the queen mother of the royal family? Broad? Yes. The Canaanite broad is part of the lineage of the kingly, the monarchy of Israel. And Matthew records that right out of the gate in chapter 1. But here's what I want to show you. Matthew is definitely up to something sneaky. Sometimes we just read these things and think, you know, a bunch of cavemen writing a story, barely got it right. <laughs> these guys are geniuses. They're, they're so crafty in the way they've done this. Matthew is up to something. So what Matthew does is he puts the Canaanite woman, several of them up there actually, talk about Ruth maybe next week, puts the Canaanite woman up there, and then he gives a little vignette a few chapters later in chapter 8. In Matthew 8, Matthew gives a little vignette of a Roman centurion. And the centurion comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I need you to do something for me. Listen, and they have this exchange, and Jesus is like, He says to the Roman centurion, Sir, I have not found so great a faith in all of Israel. See how Matthew snuck that in there? The Jews think they're God's people, but nobody else is. They're, they're, everybody else is an outsider. Jesus is looking at the Roman soldier and saying, This is the greatest faith I've found in all of Israel, and you're not Israel. You're Roman. Matthew's so sneaky. And then Matthew does it again. He's weaving the Jesus story with the Gentiles who have become part of God's people. So Matthew in chapter 15 starts this way. 22. 
a Canaanite woman. There's strike two right there. Woman and Canaanite. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to Jesus and said, Lord, son of David, have mercy. My daughter's demon-possessed, suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer her a word. So his disciples came and said, let's just shush this lady away. She's making a big scene here. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 25, the woman came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, help me. Jesus says, now it's cleverly designed. Jesus doesn't hate the woman. It's wordplay. It's a lot of fun. Jesus says in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. The woman says, yes, it is, Lord. You're wrong. It is right. Because even some crumbs fall from the master's table and the dog gets them under the table. The Canaanite woman's clever again. And I can see Jesus with a twinkle in his eye having a little fun back and forth with this woman. And Jesus said to her, verse 28, Woman, you have great faith. Canaanite woman. Matthew just wove that little story in there. Now, I want to start asking you again, who, who exactly are God's people? Jesus said to the Roman soldier, I've not found so great a faith in all of Israel. Nobody believes as strongly as you do. Who are God's people exactly? Canaanite woman comes and says, even the dogs get a little crumb. We're part of the family too. You see, this is why Matthew is going to end his Jesus story like this. Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of Why is Jesus in the story that way? Who exactly are God's people? Anyone who believes on Jesus by faith. You're not an outsider, you're an insider. Jesus' departing charge to his people was a radical departure from the old ways and the old days. He said, now for my people, I want you to take the gospel to everyone. You said, but what about everyone? Yeah, but what everyone... Take the gospel to everyone because anyone can become God's people by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you read the Bible correctly, it's filled with examples of this. And Rahab is one of the best in the whole Bible at showing you this. Peter comes along and he finally gets his head screwed on straight. He's a big racist. Finally gets his head screwed on straight. Watch what Peter says, Acts 10. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize... How true it is that God does not show favoritism. Whose side is God on? He's on his side. And anybody who believes on him by faith, Peter says this, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know what's right? To believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior. Paul was a big racist. But listen to what Paul said when he got his heart right. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon Him. For, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.
even if your name's Rahab, or Bobby, or Elijah, or Ezekiel, or Chin. Doesn't matter. He loves us all. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Surely God has spoken to your heart in these moments. Maybe you came to church today saying in your heart some version of what I have said this morning. Maybe you came in saying, I sure hope God loves and values women as much as He loves and values men. I've been sent here by God to tell you this morning that God does love you and value you. Maybe you came into church today saying, I sure hope God loves Africans and Asians and Latinos as much as He loves white people and values them. Listen, I have a word from God for you this morning. He does. He does love and value all of you. Young people, maybe you feel caught between two worlds. And there have been times in your life when you said, you know, I sure hope God loves and values teenagers and young adults as much as He does children and grandparents and parents. Uh, I've got a word from God for you, young people. God does love you. You're incredibly valuable to Him. Incredibly valuable to Him. He loves you so much. You need to be able to answer some questions in your heart this morning. Who are God's people? Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. If you take the Son, then the Father will take you. That's how simple it is. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be accepted by God, will be forgiven. Now, there are many things you may need to do this morning, but I want to speak first of all to anyone who may not be saved. Maybe this morning for the first time you realize that if you'll just reach out by faith, just as Rahab did, that God would save you and maybe would end up saving your whole family because of you. You might be the one person that could reach your whole group of people. But it needs to begin with your faith this morning. You can't lead others to where you've never been. You need to exercise your faith. What that means is you need to call upon God this morning. You need to say, God, I I I need forgiveness. I want you to know I put my trust and my belief in you. I understand you are God and I want to belong to you and your family. You need to somehow articulate that this morning and begin that relationship with God. Let me pray with you first of all while Christians are sorting through their own feelings and their own understanding of the message this morning. Let me pray with you first of all that you could receive Christ right now. If you're ready to do that, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray pray something like this. Dear God, God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. God, I, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I have no righteousness of my own. But I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you are everything the Bible declares you to be. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life and you gave your life on the cross as my substitute. You took my punishment. I'm the guilty one, not you. You were buried and I believe you rose again to be my living Savior. 
Lord, this morning I put my faith and my trust in you. I know you have the power to save me and forgive me. God, I ask you right now, please forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. From this moment, I am yours. My life is yours. My heart is yours. Come live inside of me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Take control of my life. And make me God's people right now. Thank you for loving me. And bringing me onto the inside of God's family. I want to speak to the Christians while you're in prayer just a moment. They had to bury a generation of leaders who had no faith to move forward. Think about that for a minute. If you're anywhere between the age of 20 and 100 in this room right now, this church needs you to be a leader. A spiritual leader in this church. This is a very different church. We are taking the ministry out of the hands of the pastor and we are putting it into the hands of the people. We need you to make disciples. That begins by being a disciple. If you are not being discipled, I want you to make that a matter of prayer right now and say, God, I... I, I need you to burden me about this. I need you to give me the courage to engage in the discipleship process, to mature, to develop, so that I can make disciples myself for the kingdom of God. You are not completing your mission. Christian, hear me. You're not completing your mission. Your mission isn't to conquer a city by the sword. Your mission is to conquer your community with the gospel and make disciples. And you're not completing your mission, child of God, unless you're engaged in making disciples. You've got to get in the game. You cannot sit on the sidelines. We cannot lose another generation. If you're in your 20s or 30s, I know you expect the 40s, 50s, and 60s and up to be leading. But if they won't lead, you've got to lead. You've got to do it. God will use you. And God will give you wisdom as you lead. If you're an old person like me, listen, you've got to lead. You've got to lead. This is your moment. Reform. Change. Learn how to reach your culture. Learn how to reach your community. I'm going to ask every child of God right now in this moment of prayer just to rededicate your life to the Lord and to the mission. Say to God, God, I I put myself in your hands fresh this morning. I am your people by faith. God, now show me what it means to be your people by making disciples. Lord, help me to be on the mission that you have for your church and your people this week and in this summer and in this fall. God, use my life. I want to make a difference in this world. God, use my life as I go off to the university. God, use my life as I speak into my children this summer on the break. God, use my life as I move around the country this summer. 
Father, your people are bowed before you this morning. Their hearts are open. God, as you're speaking to us, help us to have ears to hear all that you're saying. God, my response to you this morning is simply, yes. Lord, if you need Germany on Mexico, yes is the answer. God, if you need us in Romania, yes is the answer. God, whatever you need, yes is the answer. Lord, we don't know how we're going to pay for it. We don't know how we have the energy to do it. But yes is the answer. We're your people and we can all things through Christ which strengthens us. God, we just place ourselves freshly into your hands this morning. We dedicate our lives to you. God, may this community be transformed by your power, your spirit working through your people. God, thank you for the story of Rahab. God, you've given us a lot of hope this morning that none of us are outsiders. Because of your finished work on the cross, Lord, you have brought us all right into the family of God. God, thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for making us accepted in your beloved family. God, thank you for seeing through all of the nonsense of racial lines and political lines and all the ways we can think to divide people. God, thank you for cutting through all of that and getting right to the heart of each person. God, we love you so much this morning. Thank you for blessing us by being in your house today. In Jesus' name. Amen.